I am, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, I'm the research director here. I'm Hannah Riley Gold. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, where we are dedicated to closing gaps in uh, uh, economic and political, political participation, uh, education, and health. We are, we have this wonderful uh, Thursday lunchtime speaker series, and we are thrilled today to have uh, professor Joni uh, Hirsch uh, from Vanderbilt University. She's a professor of law and economics. And um, she's going to be speaking on this very um, compelling topic from a, an academic and practical perspective about opting out among women with elite education. And um, this is not the only area of Prof Professor Hirsch's work. She also does um, work on sexual harassment, job risks faced by immigrant workers, cost of smoking, punitive damages, and judge and jury behavior. Um, and we are thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm kind of awed by the size of the room, the size of the audience here. But thank you. Um, I, um, I have actually have been working on gender differences in the labor market forever, including back when graduate students were advised that if they were women, the last thing they should work on is gender differences in the labor market. Uh, but, um, and, and I feel I've gotten closer to the, the answers. Um, here's what we're trying to explain. If you see from this graph, we have uh, men's labor force activity is in fact higher than women and always has been. It is somewhat declining, but there isn't a precipitous drop off of any kind. In contrast, if you look at what's been going on for women, we see these huge advances through the 70s and 80s, leveling off in the 90s. And if we get over to recent time, we see what may be the beginning of the decline, or it may be an artifact of the recession. But the question is, what, where are we going? And the question here is that, is why are we seeing rapid growth what may be a plateau, what may be a decline. And the question that I'm answering, asking is, are women opting out of the labor force? Now, the answer, to, the accepted answer among economists is no. <laughs> women are not, in fact, opting out of the labor force, where the notion of opting out is referring to women leaving the labor force or stopping out of the labor force to care for their children. The answer is, accepted by economists is there's nothing new here in that women have, who have children have always had less labor force activity, but that doesn't mean anything has changed and that there's nothing that has changed that could account for a decline in women's labor market activity. But if we put together the fact that women with children are less likely to participate in the labor market, the question then is why is that so? And the answer is that if women are leaving the labor market, it is because of institutional barriers that make having work-family balance impossible or too difficult to warrant um, uh, progression in the labor market and advancing to the higher levels of, of, their, of their careers. Okay, so part of this is, um, if, you, if you think about all the media flurry about this, the, the, the question hasn't been just <clears throat> opting out mothers in the labor market, the focus in the media has in fact been on women who are graduates of elite institutions. And the, um, and keep in mind that these women who are graduates of elite institutions are also the one 
ones that are more likely to make it all the way to the top. They're, they are going to be the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. But if they're the ones opting out, they're not in fact around to, to both progress to that level, but they're also not around to hire women in the middle tiers to, for them to request to the top. So the, the, stall, the stalling of any women's progression to the top can in fact be related to the possibility that elite women are opting out. The problem though is how would we know if this is true? Well, journalists have focused on interviews of, of uh, for instance, uh, print a group, uh, Lisa Belkin's article 10 years ago, uh, The Opting Out Revolution, focused on women who were graduates mostly of Princeton, and other studies have been based on anecdotes but on small samples. And if you want to ask the question, is this true overall for elites, you're going to run immediately into huge methodological challenges in that to get at this answer, you would need a very large sample to compare elites to non-elite graduates because by definition, elites are a very small share of any sample. So if what we're doing is we're looking, as economists have done so far, at women in the labor force overall, the comparisons have been educated, college-educated women to non-college-educated women, for instance. Now, given that the vast majority of college-educated women are not graduates of elite institutions, if you don't, if as long as the non-elite graduates stay in the labor market, you won't see a difference, and so you will conclude that there is no evidence of opting out. So, so methodologically, there is, that's simply going to be a challenge with lack of adequate data. Now, let's talk about the theoretical challenges. You have two things going on when you think about who's in the labor force. The higher your own expected earnings are, the more likely you are to be in the labor force. And we certainly would expect that the elite graduates who are also more likely to get graduate degrees and professional degrees are the ones with the higher expected earnings, and we do expect for them to be in the labor force. On the other hand, as long as people marry people that are similar to them, and we have ample evidence that that's true, they're also more likely to be married to men that have high earnings. Let's compound that by the fact that elite graduates are disproportionately people from higher income family backgrounds, which means that they enter college with less debt, uh, they have family support if something goes wrong, they have an inheritance or help with paying for kids' education uh, down the line. So it, theoretically it's ambiguous um, whether or not the higher own earnings will dominate the higher non-own labor income. But empirically, what economists do find is that uh, these things don't matter, that women with more education are, in fact, more likely to be in the labor force. But once again, high education is not the same thing as being an elite grad. And so without data that will allow us to look at that separately, we don't actually know whether or not there's truth to the perception, uh, and what I'll say reality, that women with elite education are less likely to be in the labor force. Now, going back just briefly to the diagram here, let's think of this uh, as, and as a, uh, if, we're, if we're going down, if we're, if we're plateauing and we're going down and the elites are the ones that are leading the way to the down out of the labor market, then I think it's, it um, spells doom for women 
going forward because it the, the down is the problem. The level would have been okay, but the down is the problem because it's shutting off the pipeline going forward. Okay, so how do I get around this? Well, um, my approach is I, I'm using data on a very large sample, all college graduates. And although we don't know the exact school that these college graduates attended, we do know enough about their school for me to stratify the graduates into tiers, the elite tiers and the non-elite tiers. Okay, so now we can get simple statistics comparing the labor market activity of women from elite institutions, that graduated from elite institutions and women that did not. Then we have to ask the question, what caused that? Is it because of differences in age of childbearing or differences in spouse earnings or differences in the occupations that they choose. And I do take all that into account in a regression framework. So what do I find? Let's jump to the conclusions and then we'll go to how we got there and then we'll go to the policy implications of this. If you do look at national averages as others have done, you will not find evidence of, mass, of opting out. But if you do take into account the differences by tiers of the institution, there is, in fact, overwhelming evidence of opting out or stopping out because it's cross-sectional data. But that, and I look at uh, many measures and every single one tells the same story. I'll only be talking about two here just because of time constraints. But they all tell the same story. Women who are graduates of elite institutions are less likely to be in the labor market when they leave. They're out longer. Um, their attachment over period, two periods of time, two years apart, is less. They're less likely to work full time. Um, and where the action happens is um, when there are children. Until there are children, it, we get what you would expect. The well, we get almost what you wouldn't expect. Without children, because the elite grads have, are higher, have higher education, more graduate degrees, and they don't have children, they really should be more likely to be in the labor market. They're not. There is no difference among college graduates based on the tier of their institution until there are children. Then when there are children, we see this gap. Um, okay, so how did I, where's this data? I'm using the National Survey of College Graduates. And this is, uh, this is a data set that's sponsored by uh, National Science Foundation. They're mostly interested, and in most years of the survey, in the STEM fields or occupations. But in 2003 and 2010, uh, and also 1993, they have their special once a decade surveys where they survey all fields and occupations. That gives me a very large sample size. And because they're all college graduates, it's even better for these purposes. So we have over 100,000 observations in 2003. We have 77,000 in 2010. And we want to look at women at the age of which this is relevant. If women are older than 54, they were before women were actually allowed into the professions. But because all of them are college graduates and because of the leg when they survey, they are all at least 23. It, it happens that way by the time they're surveyed in the data set. So I end up with over 58,000 observations. Now, the real trick here is creating tiers in a context where we don't have information on their school. And even if we did, I don't 
it's hard to categorize because schools are differ in terms of how you assign quality. But what we do have in this data set is a Carnegie classification. Now the Carnegie classification is is used to group institutions on the basis of similarity of mission. So we'll have research one universities will be schools like Harvard where the they get uh, it, the, the stratification into tier, into um, classifications are based on um, research funding, highest degrees offered, and diversity of degrees offered. So the research one universities will be the ones you would start thinking about of that are similar to Harvard, um, down to liberal arts, which are liberal arts one, liberal arts two, down to uh, baccalaureate only. So what I did, I do know if they're public or private, and what I did is I took the list of the 4,000 schools that are classified by Carnegie, and I compared it to Barron's Profile of American Colleges, which groups into six categories in the same year, the 1994, where the tiers are done. And then I just stratified based <coughs> on the similarity, based on percentages that are different. And it's pretty obvious when you look at the, at the groupings here. If you look over here at the research one, private research one. Of the private research one, we have 16 of the 29 schools are most competitive by Barron's and seven are highly competitive, competitive according to Barron's. Research two, uh, again, we have nine out of the 11 are either most or highly competitive according to Barron's. And just so you can think of this, research two includes Notre Dame and BYU, so they're similar and they're selective and they're major, but they're not, they will differ in terms of research funding or the breadth of the degrees offered. So let's move down. Um, doctoral one and two will be schools that have less of everything, less research funding or less variety in the degrees offered. Masters, same thing, they will mostly have highest degrees masters and liberal arts will not have graduate or largely not have graduate degrees. So you can see that once you leave the research one and two private category, you don't get a lot of schools that are selective. Going on down to liberal arts one though, um, that will include Wellesley. Um, since, and you see that about a, <laughs> about a third of the schools that are liberal arts one are, are um, most are highly competitive and in fact, Carnegie making their classifications do count selectivity of the institution explicitly in categorizing uh, liberal arts colleges into research, into liberal arts one versus liberal arts two. Okay, so that's the second chair. I've circled it. Let's come over to the public schools. Not a whole lot are highly selective, which isn't surprising because often they're land-grant colleges that, or are otherwise by states constrained to admit a majority of their students from within state. Where you see some selectivity here is with respect to the research one schools. But if you think of the proportions here, large proportion of the private research ones and two are highly selective, a smaller but in fact statistically significant difference in the proportion of schools are of the liberal arts one, private liberal arts one are selective and then next up the the public research one schools and after that not a whole lot of these schools are selective at all and that is what makes my four categories tier one tier two tier three and everything else goes into tier four 
Now, with that in hand, let's think about how, um, let's think about the distribution of our sample. It has to be the case that the tier one has relatively few people, um, and it's about 5% overall of the women in this age group. Um, tier two, these also, there are lots of these liberal arts schools, but they tend to be small and smaller than the private research one and two schools, so that contributes about another 5% of the sample. Tier three, these are largely the major state schools. Uh, state of California has seven schools that are highly selective, uh, and some states, um, like University of Wyoming, is not. It, it falls into uh, research two, public research two. So these are going to be largely the, the major schools that are known for their high research um, and research funding and research output. But there will be more of those because they are, in fact, large schools. And then most people are going to be in the other tiers. Now, um, if some schools are missing Carnegie code, some, if, you, uh, if you're a graduate of a non-US university, Carnegie doesn't classify you. And the specialized school will be things like uh, schools of art or design or uh, Bible colleges. Now, let's think, we're going, we're going to get to, our goal is to find out what uh, leads to increase or decrease in labor market activity. So what, what, what do we expect to have increase your own labor market activity? Well, if you're in a field, you're all college graduates, if you're in a field where pay is higher, we expect you to be more likely to be in the labor market. Uh, and I have data with, I have data on the field of your degree. I know what your degrees are, so any graduate degree is recorded. I also know when your degrees were awarded. We also, and this is wonderful, we have your own occupation if you're working. What if you're not working? Well, they actually record what your last occupation was, which is very helpful because we want to know what occupations people leave as well. So higher values, better paying jobs are expected to increase your labor market activity. Um, what's expected to decrease your labor market activity? Well, in theory, uh, your spouse's income, higher spouse's income, higher non-labor income than any form, which is family income, family wealth, as well as own non your husband's income. So if his is higher, you are theoretically expected to have lower labor market activity. The data uh, does not actually record your spouse's actual earnings. What it does do is it records whether he's employed and whether the job he's in requires expertise at a bachelor's level of, or higher in different disciplines. So that's not perfect, but it's actually pretty desirable in the sense that we know very well that education is the strongest determinant of lifetime earnings. And it's not endogenous, unlike his own income would be. So we also have parents' education, which is going to be a proxy for family wealth for the same reason. We also know in detail about children. We know the age of, we know the number of children of different ages as well. Then we have other controls. We know a lot about their demographics and we know where they are. So these are other factors that will influence labor market activity. So let's take a look at the characteristics here. And I, I find this just surprisingly striking. But what share of people get a, a PhD, a professional, other professional degree? These would be MDs and JDs. 
or an MBA based on what tier you attended. And if you look in 2003, 26% of tier one get graduate degrees of some kind, down to 7% of tier four, and look down to uh, 2010, we have an even larger share of women who graduated from tier one universities, 31% getting graduate degrees versus 7%, you know, even slightly less in tier four. With the values going down, tier one is larger than tier two, larger than tier three, and then big plummet when we get to tier four. So, you know, right now you should be thinking, well, they, these women ought to be working because they have an MBA, they have a JD. You know, why, it, I mean, this has to be insane that they're not in the labor market, but, um, well, that's why I gave you the answer first, right here. <laughs> um, okay, now let's start looking at so the family. the out there are of the women that you know. Yes, yeah, yeah, so. so parents. The, yeah, so now this is their own parents, which, Again, I find just amazing. The, it, the, the chance that your father will have at least a bachelor's degree or higher is, is double if you're tier one versus tier four. 64% versus 34% in 2010, in 2003, and in 2010, it's an even larger gap, 73% versus 39%. The fathers are far more likely to have a PhD or a professional degree of some kind. I mean, look around the room. It's you know those undergrads here, twenty you know one in five, or one in four, <laughs> of of those of in the room that are wealthy undergrads <laughs> have a father that has a PhD or a professional degree, and that by the way doesn't include include MBAs simply because the data do not allow me to identify MBAs. These are professional degrees such as a JD or an MD. Um, the mothers are also overwhelmingly more educated as well. We can see from this the increase in education, even in what's roughly an eight-year gap in the survey periods. Yeah, question? I'm gonna interrupt, I just saw the date on the slide. There's, I don't see a category for like my own mother with an advanced degree. I, I took it out only to fit it on the slide because it's actually very small. But it also follows the same pattern, but it's quite, it is actually quite small. Okay, so here we are with sort of different people. Now let's, so we have different in background and we have different in graduate degrees. Well, let's look at whether we also have differences in personal characteristics. I, I didn't put significance because there aren't any until we get to the spouse's job. So basically the odds of marrying, of being married at the survey time are pretty much the same regardless of what tier you attended. The odds of having children are pretty much the same, regardless of what tier you attended, and spouse's employment if you are married. They're all pretty much the same. Now, this masks some differences in the age. In tier one graduates have children later, um, and so they're more likely to have children under 18 when they're in the older age group, whereas Tier four women have children younger and then they have children out of the house by the time they're in the older age group. But pretty much overall, the differences are not, there are differences that would be likely to explain why we have 
lower labor market activity among the tier one until we get to the spouse's job. Now, here we see large differences in the, in the educational level associated with the husband's job. If for the tier one graduates, 79% or 74%, depending on the year, of men of the husbands are employed in jobs that require at least a bachelor's level or higher. And, uh, but if you go down to the women it, that are graduates of tier four institutions, it's considerably lower. It's about 57 to 61, 56% to 61%. So we have gaps on the order of 15 to 20% percentage points in the probability of having jobs, of, the, of their husbands having jobs at that level. Yeah, question? That's just for those that are married, right? It's not the complete. Yes, this is just if they're married and if their husband's employed. So we're getting conflicting um, predictions here, but the graduate degrees really should be overwhelmingly leading to higher labor market activity, given that the children marriage are not, and the husbands are, in fact, employed. But let's see what we find. So here are labor market activity. Now, these are all women, not women that are married, not uh, whether not conditioned on marital status, not conditioned on children, just overall. This is out there picking somebody off the street. Women who are uh, tier one graduates, their employment rates 78% compared to 84% for tier four. And in 2003, and we have uh, gaps of about eight percentage points in full-time employment. And looking again at 2010, we see that we have even larger gaps in the probability of employment or full-time employment. Now, I mentioned trends, and trends will await more years just because we've just reached that point where we might be peaking and tipping down. But if you look now at employment or full-time employment of tier one, we see that the rates have, in fact, declined for, uh, from 78.4% to 77.6% for employment. Not large differences, but that may be uh, heralding uh, where we're going in the future, and you do not see that for the tier four graduates. There's st stability over the years, despite the recession. Karen, can I ask a yes. question about that? Mm -hmm. How does that compare with the 03 to 10 comparison for spouses? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I thought, maybe I've misinterpreted the previous slide, but mm -hmm. I thought employment of yeah. spouses was going down. Down for the tier one. Yeah. For Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It is. So, what does that tell you? Right. Well, we're going to Yes, but, but, and this may be um, the added worker effect for the tier four women, and the tier one men can ride it out. The tier one households can ride it out. But, all that, that said, the unemployment rate for college graduates actually is really really pretty low anyway, despite the recession, and despite what we read in the papers. It's, it's, I also looked at unemployment rates, specifically unemployment rates, and it doesn't really vary much by tier. Okay, let's, let's look now at our married women, and let's look at what the differences are on the basis of whether or not there are children under age 18 in the household. 
here's where you get the big differences. So they're all married, they're all age 23 to 54. And let's take 2003 in, um, because we know there isn't a recession, so we know we won't be compounding anything <laughs> there. Okay, so it, women in tier one, tier one graduates that uh, have, do not have kids, have uh, their probability of employment is 88%. With, chil with children, it's 68%, with a gap of 20 percentage points. Let's go over to tier four. Um, if they have no kids, the, labor, the employment rate is higher than for tier one graduates, but not by a whole lot. 88% versus basically 90%, a 1.9 percentage point difference. But because their probability of being employed if they have kids is so much higher, tier four graduates with kids are, will, the probability of their employment is 76%. The gap is only 13.5 percentage points as compared to the 20.2 percentage points of the gap between elite, the tier one women uh, with and without kids. Is this so any employment for full-time employment or part-time? This one is any employment. I'll do full-time next. Um, um, we see a similar pattern, uh, but e an even um, smaller disparity in the probability of working with and without kids of tier four when we get to 2010. So this is the gap here. It's not just kids, I mean, there's a couple of points to make here. One is without kids, we don't get statistically significant differences in the probability of employment. It's quite high for these women. It's almost at the same level as their husbands, which was around 92%. So women without kids do work, and it doesn't matter where they graduated from. But with kids, there are the gaps, the disparities appear, they're considerable, and they, uh, and they're, and they're statistically significant, and what we want to ask is why did that happen when we have these <coughs> countervailing effects? Uh, so given that this is unmarried women, mm -hmm. does this already suggest to us that it might not just be the income of the husband? Because we don't see the kids, no kids. But I mean, meaning right. oh, yes, very no good. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Mother, that's right. Don't We'll never get through this if I don't speed things up a tiny, tiny bit. But um, when you look at full time, you see these uh, full time is harder with children, and we have larger gaps between the, ch the no children and children rates. But once again, we have the same substantial differences between tier one and tier four in terms of working full time that we've seen among those with children that we do not see when there are not children. Okay, so we want to explain this and we want to, to the, take into account husband's income as well as the age of children. There are a lot of things that may differ, number of children, age of children, family background, and Jen, access to well. yeah. back one slide. Yeah. Do you, 
can you share with us information between the slides that with the large drop in terms of women who stopped working full time, did they actually go out of the workforce or did they just slide into the part time? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I don't know quickly enough to answer that yeah. now. So, yeah. Um, can we talk talk about that later? I may know, I may I, I may know, but I don't know okay. quickly enough. But, but, but I mean, there is the, the, the kind of good news is that if you compare 2003 to 2010, at least for the tier two, three, you know, to mm -hmm. some extent with the four women, you're seeing a, a, a shrinking of that gap, right? I mean, the, yes. the, only, you're, the, only, the only group yes. that's going in the wrong direction are the tier right. one. That's right, right, that's right. I just want to say that, George, like there is a study that has some of that information about the part time. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the 16 years out of all the Harvard graduate school studies that have the same material. It basically yeah. says most of the part-time people got uh, Well, see, I, I have part-time results in my paper um, with the same disparities on the basis of tier. Um, but your question is conditional on being in the labor force at all. Right. Are they more likely? And right. I do, I, I don't have that in my Just paper. Just so we're not counting a larger gap when it's right. really more of a shift. Yeah, opt out right. Is more it's a move over. it's there's still less like there is still the disparity on the basis of tier in any employment at all with respect to being part time. I, so there, they, some are, but but um, there are a larger share part time in tier one than in tier four. But right, right. The comparative still holds true. Yes, yes. Okay. So, oh, question. Okay, I, okay, so I, I did analyze based, um, okay, I assigned tier two both graduate degree as well as undergraduate degree because 84% stayed in the same tier for graduate school, in part because you have to go to a selective undergraduate, you don't have to, but it, you highly, you're very, you're far more likely to get into a higher ranked graduate program if you started off at a, a higher ranked undergraduate institution. So it, it's 84% and because it's 84%, it turns out that what it doesn't matter, they're, too, they're saying the same thing. And so the results are not affected at all by That's control. Okay. But I do control in the regressions in the paper that break it down by different graduate degrees. And so I do control for the, the highest tier and you still get these disparities. Um, okay, so let's control for what we can because we're trying to explain the numbers you know, evidence causes and then societal consequences. So <coughs> causes, well, um, I do in the regressions control for educational field. We have very, we, ha we know their exact college major and we know every degree that they have. And I do control for all of that. I control for their current occupation and that they are no longer in the labor market, what their previous occupation had been. Demographic information, which would include uh, ethnicity, race, citizenship status, the spouse information, as I mentioned earlier, the children, of, number of children of each of the different ages, where they're located in parents' education, highly detailed parents' education. Um, not just BA or higher, but PhD or professional degree or less in high school. Um, so as I noted, since the tier differences are only among married with children, I'm going to present those regression results summarized. But I do want to point out that um, I looked at every possible way of measuring labor market activity and every single one showed, tells us exactly the same story. 
Um, so here is um, here are the regression coefficients on labor market activity of the tier four relative to the tiers one through three. So without uh, these are all married with kids, without taking into account any characteristics, but just the raw differences. Uh, the probability of being employed uh, if you're a tier one graduate relative to tier four is 8.7, uh, if you're a tier four graduate relative to tier four, you're 8.7 percentage points more likely to be employed. Once we take into account all of these characteristics, the gap is somewhat smaller, but still a statistically significant 6.1%. When we get to tier three, tier two, the gap, the unadjusted gap is smaller, but we do explain the difference in employment fully. There is no longer a statistically significant difference in employment once we take into account characteristics. When we get to tier three, though, we have a substantial gap that we, we do explain, but not fully, by characteristics. And full-time, we have a similar pattern in terms of explaining, and sometimes we explain even less of the disparity. The tier one, um, tier one to tier four gap is less explained by characteristics than, it we, than when we started adjusting. So to summarize the results that aren't on this slide, um, what increases the probability of employment? Well, having a science and engineering uh, undergraduate major, which is high paying, does increase the probability that you'll be in the labor force, despite everything you read about how hostile science and engineering is to women, they are in the labor force. Having a graduate degree, uh, unsurprisingly, increases the probability of being employed, unless it's an MBA. And in 2003, using the 2003 data, I have a 30 percentage point disparity that I don't explain in the probability of employment if you're an, a tier one graduate with an MBA. Uh, the occupations, some of these occupations might intuitively indicate that they're higher paying and they are. So they do make you more likely to be in the labor force if you have a management or a science or a health degree relative to sales, but others do not make you less likely to be in the labor force. And there are some racial disparities. Now what decreases the probability of employment among married mothers? Being a tier one or a three relative to tier four, kids of all ages do lead to lower labor market activity and as the kids get older, it, there's less of a likelihood that you're out of the labor force. Husbands with likely higher paying jobs. But this is a small amount, by the way. It's, it is in there in a statistically significant fashion, but it isn't where the real action is. And um, a little bit surprising, fathers with a bachelor's or higher degree, and these are all degrees, including professional degrees, you, women are less likely to be in the labor market if their father has higher levels of education. But mother's education is not important, and that's sort of surprising. Because I think we would have thought that more educated mothers would inspire the daughters to be in the labor market. Do you have questions? Yeah, does, it, does that translate also to racism? I don't know. Um, I don't know, I do know though that I won't have enough observations to be, have adequate power, but it's a good question and I'll write that down. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting uh, about what your findings were and in the paper, 
So right now, parents' education has really expanded for wealth. And my recollection is that you also actually looked at whether or not they received additional income. Or did you only use the study? Did you only use this set of data? Yeah, I only, right. There, now, there, there, there are other studies show that, the, that well, there's a high association of debt, you know, right. with whether you borrow for school with family income, which is correlated with this, but they don't have actual family debt or actual family income in here. Because I think one of the real questions is how much is there an unintended um, insurance effect, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think what we're, you know, there's the whole question, did you walk out of um, this whole project and think that the education is a stand-in, that elite education is in essence just a stand-in or a filter for wealth of a family more broadly and how much external insurance? Yeah. That's primary. Yeah. yeah, that's one. That's, that's my read. Right, that's one of the uh, things I consider important. Let me um, let me go. I, I I would actually like to comment on that and, um, um, later. Later. Perfect. Okay. There. I think this is the forty minutes I was allocated, <laughs> but um, there are a lot of policy implications oh, wait, here. You have until the top of the hour. We have oh, okay. The hour. oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry for oh. that confusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have until the top of the hour. So. Okay. Well. Then interrupt. <laughs> Actually, let me get let me get back to that. Let me get back to that question then. Okay, so here's the thing. Why? What? What? What is? I, I guess I do think family wealth and the insurance function associated with family wealth is very important. I also think that a lot of it has to do with the heterogeneity of preferences in terms of whether you actually anticipate market work or not, and that's a goal when you decide to go to an elite school. In that, if you come from and. The, the statistics are, you know, undeniable here. You are far more likely to come from a highly educated family if you're tier one. And, um, and if, if you don't decline Harvard, whether you think that Harvard is going to prepare you for the workforce, you go anyway. And um, so that I think, so what I, but if you take instead the tier four graduates who are in fact more like, their family making sacrifices. They are, this is true, more likely to be in debt. Now, admittedly, student loans are subsidized in a favorable way for, and more likely to be used by tier four, but all the same, they're, they're, um, they're, they're making an investment, and it's an investment that's only worth doing if you don't, in fact, have that insurance function of family wealth. And I, and so you, those that, in fact, do go to college are those that I think anticipate um, making this as an investment rather than consumption. Um, a question there? Um, I was curious on the bottom point there, you said the mother's education was not important or not significantly important. Right. Did you did you also look at all at whether the mother's education plus whether the mother stayed in, was in the labor market? We don't have that information. Because I wonder if that would yeah. be an indicator. If you if I grew up and right. see my mother was in a dentistry and my father was in a dentistry yeah. and both were working or you know, whatever right. the dynamic is. Right. Right. <coughs> Yeah, no, no, that's right, right. right. Um, oh, question? Yeah. yeah, can you see the trend of where women are going according to which year? Because there is some views um, from Harvard showing that women who were graduating from 65 were yeah. more likely to be in the civic sector and the yeah. ones from yeah. younger graduating more in the private sector. Uh, 
Okay, I don't know if that's, I, I, I can do that and I don't know what the, what the answer is. Um, what I do know though is that uh, because I know what occupations people left as well as what occupations they didn't leave, they, it doesn't, it doesn't differ. You, I, I also looked at variability in hours and average hours and average hours worked by men and variability of the hours worked by men, thinking that has to explain it. You know, women are leaving the ones with higher or more variable hours and that does not explain it either. It's something else going on with the tier differences. Okay, well with the policy implications, I have a slide for each of these points, but um, there's, there are a lot, there are an enormous number of policy implications. But yeah. Could you, you, you just said what you just said very fast. Could, oh. you, could you say that again? Yeah. You, you, you looked also at the number of hours yeah, I, worked. Yeah, I looked at, well, their own hours worked, but I also looked at, um, I looked at the average hours worked by women and by men within the same occupation, as well as how variable the hours are, thinking that women with children, that, I mean, that would be a rationale right. for leaving. And that was not a significant predictor? It's a significant, it just doesn't eliminate the tier effect. It doesn't eliminate the tier yeah. effect. Yeah, it matters, it just doesn't, it matters to everybody the same. So all of this, you know, uh, it's all or nothing, I don't, it's, it, it's not enough to explain the differences between tier one and tier four, which I think is other things are in fact going on like family insurance and the heterogeneity of preferences. So that was included in the regression equation? Those it's, 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 no, it's not, it's not. Because yeah. I would think it would have an effect because I would expect that the women in tier one would be like more likely to be in professional jobs, lawyers yeah. or you know, you know, yeah. top in their fields, therefore A, have to work more hours yeah. and perhaps you know, travel yeah. more, have higher stresses and say to themselves, I've got young children, yeah. I'm not gonna leave at this point in time, I'm gonna stop out when yeah. children old enough to go back. And I suspect that you, if you put it in the regression equation, you might find it has an impact on the tiers effect. But it doesn't. See, I can't put actual hours. If they're not in the labor force, they don't have any hours worked. So pass I'm using. Pass occupation. I do that. So I do that. I, I do average that. hours for that occupation. I, so I, I do for either women or for men. So it is in the regression. Yeah, not in, not in the one in the paper that you have, but in other work I've been doing. So. So yeah, I know, it, I agree, I expected it. I, I always expect to explain everything. And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's another study out of the um, Harvard Graduate School, I don't know how many answers that it's 16 years, and they look at all the, uh, after, the after graduation from graduate schools just at Harvard, all the different schools. They find that when a profession starts to perceive to be more flexible, its average age wage per hour goes down and its, its prestige goes down. Yeah. For example, Vet, vet uh, animal doctors in the 70s, predominantly male, very high status, highly paid. Now it's 70% plus women, lower status, lower pay. The same for dental, pediatricians. So this is, this is sort of a bigger societal thing about okay. when, when a job is seen to be more flexible and a, allow you to have your children at home and look after them, right. then the prestige goes down. So, um, yeah, question? Sorry if you already answered this, but to, did you look at like uh, what the mother or father's like working status was? Like if, for example, like, if the mother was ever, ever took time out of the workforce? No, it's not in the data. So I, yeah, I can't look at that. Okay. Um, 
opting out versus sort of opting down, which yeah. I think you sort of described. Um, was there any evidence in the data about career shifts, meaning switching from one full-time position to another full-time position, but perhaps one that was considered more flexible or less prestigious or, or any kind of shift in that regard? Okay, so we, we can't do it with these data right now, but we will be able to because they're turning this into a panel. So I'll, in, in um, approximately a year, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know this. Um, but what we do know, though, is um, we do we do know were they working 18 to 24 months earlier, whether they're working now, whether it's full time, and it's um, um, you still have the tier one effect that's large, you know, a large magnitude. Yeah. to that just um, um, but it is it, it's uh, the causality I don't um, um, I, I'd rather first talk about the consequences here and then what's the causality because I, I, I'm, I agree with what you're saying about the causality that it's hitting the elite women in a way that it's not hitting other people and I don't know why that would be true given that the elite graduates are more likely to be in Occupations where they have more choice, or they can, they have the option of moving down more so than the tier four graduates have the option of moving down. And instead of moving down, there is some of that, but there's a lot of it moving out entirely. So, I, we'll be talking about that somewhat going forward. So here are these five points that um, of the societal implications here. But what, it, what does, in fact, this mean about the women in the labor market? And I think this is addressing the whole lean-in question. Is it enough for women to lean in? And I, I would say no. Um, um, but, it, the, but the fact that it is the elites that are less likely to be in the labor force does, in fact, have the, out, the direct consequence on the share of women in a position to advance as well as the pipeline going forward. It also has some really big impact on intergenerational inequality, which we'll talk about. And now you can just think very specifically, limited slots in the elite graduate programs, uh, limited slots period, undergraduate as well as graduate programs, and the fact that um, elite schools are highly subsidized through taxes, preferential tax treatment. So let's look at these. Institutional barriers, well, um, 
Sheryl Sandberg said, lean in, work harder, you know, it's all your own fault if you aren't secure. I actually, um, I, I've read, I'm, I have 30 pages left in that, and I, I, um, um, I, this isn't the world, first of all, it isn't the world that I'm seeing that women just aren't, you know, getting out there, they're not sitting at the table, sit at the table's an actual title of one of the chapters, and uh, so all of you that are sitting along the edge didn't, chose not to sit at the table, and you should have been sitting at the table. But, uh, but um, I, I, I see a lot more barriers than, uh, that can't possibly be overcome just by leaning in more. If you read, uh, there was an article a few weeks ago on Harvard Business School and what amounts to basically hazing of junior women faculty by uh, men. I don't know how much leaning in can overcome some, that kind of hostile treatment and I rarely read the paper without seeing more evidence of men just overlooking women, if not deliberately excluding, they're just not considered and not selected. So it may be not discrimination against women, but it may be preferential treatment of people that are more like them. But I'm not, I don't see all this insecurity of women, but I hope I'm right, I mean, and I hope I'm right, the women aren't failing to advance because they're insecure. Now, Anne-Marie Slaughter is saying you can't have it all, which any economist would agree with, but, um, but the question then is it flexibility of the work, is it institutional barriers or is it workplace inflexibility? And so I look at these results and I can't say that it, it ha it's workplace inflexibility because if it is, it has to be affecting the women who are in the strongest position to find the jobs that they want differently than the other women who are, you know, are provided with the same options. Now, if we talk about access to childcare or public funding of childcare, uh, a very, very large percentage of of uh, children, uh, uh, students at the elite schools were uh, private school, high school graduates. So I do question whether or not making public funding of childcare available is going to change whether or not people that already sent their children to private schools, even when good public schools are available, are going to change their labor market, their labor market activity based on the availability of public funding of childcare. Same thing with family leave or uh, our legal protection. We've had 20 years of experience with the Family and Medical Leave Act, which guarantees reemployment after 12 weeks. It doesn't guarantee pay, of course, but for the kind of jobs held by college graduates, they, you, in essence, do have the opportunity to have paid through vacation, uh, short-term disability, sick leave, and so forth. So the, the money itself isn't... Oh, only in part, though, right? Because that's only oh. for companies with 50 or more supportive right. to right. the American workforce, right. which right. women are more likely to work in. Yeah, right. Aren't in that. Right. Yeah. So there's, it's relevant, but if you ask, will making jobs more flexible change whether tier one graduates will stay in the labor market? I, I, I doubt it. I don't think that's where the action is and where we have the most opportunity to make changes. Yeah. Uh, Olga, where the wage penalty of children
workforce largest for the highest earning women. Mm -hmm. So I think that has both real economic effects, as in losing 50%, you know, of your income when you come back, um, but also psychological effects of reference points. Yeah. So and then for the lowest, you know, the lowest 50 percentile, the wage gap, the wage penalty of having children is basically zero. It's very very low. So right. I imagine right. that must affect the likelihood of reentry. Of the, you know, right. of depending on how you can come back to the labor market. Right, but um, I don't know how these the these kind of changes that are intended for broad sweeping changes will affect the elite graduates who are the ones that are choosing to opt out. So I, I don't know what policy you can implement here, given that this is the estimated consequences of opting out behavior. You want to do what Sweden does, which is guarantee wages. So you come back at the same wage. Well, you, yes, except then we run into the possibility that employers opt not to hire women because they don't want those benefits. So uh, uh, I, I think we need an even higher level of change <laughs> to get real change. Okay, so hiring decisions. I think here is somewhere we can make, we can have some um, influence here. In fact, elite firms preferentially recruited elite institutions and uh, by hiring elite grads, if they do not stay in, they're gone and I would, and then firms are allowed to say, well, gee, we tried, we did everything we could to hire uh, women and they left, so no longer our responsibility and I would hope to see Keep in mind that the women that are working are the ones that are not elite grads, and they're there with children, <laughs> still working. So one way is for firms to, if they have a real commitment to hiring women, to recognize that. Now, intergenerational inequality. Well, you know, you're, excuse me, you're, yeah. you're saying recruit it. Don't don't just recruit at the elite schools. Yes, right. recruit women from. I mean, it could have implications for also the type of women that elite schools recruit. Mm -hmm. So, like, you yeah. have, for instance, some of these some of the elite schools yeah. now recruiting yeah. um, people or students out of community colleges, yes. where that that's was right. not the, the precedent in the past. Yeah. Yes. No, that's right. Uh, more, more. The more we have diversity in backgrounds, the more likely you will have people that don't have that social, that family insurance function, that may that statistically are more likely to remain in the labor force. So these are all good things. All this diversity stuff is going in the right direction in terms of uh, creating women's opportunities going forward. But if we take a look, this, uh, if you've, there are recent studies showing that equally qualified women from lower, equally qualified children from lower income, families are less likely to uh, even apply to selective colleges even if it would cost them less to do so. We also know that there are lower graduation rates at these less selective schools. If you look at the six-year graduation rate, they, they, it, uh, it's very high for the elite schools within six years. It is not so high for the non-selective schools, and it is not just athletes, as you might think. <laughs> so, uh, but then let's ask, is there a benefit to having a stay-at-home mom? And you might think that's an easy question. I thought it would be an easy question to answer. The literature is somewhat mixed, but I'll, overall it does seem to suggest that there is some benefit to children if the mother 
doesn't isn't in the labor market. Okay. That good for yeah, question. What about Oh, I don't know if there. I haven't seen studies on that. I haven't seen data. Well, I haven't seen studies. No, we see it happening. I don't know what. See, just a mother at home, a parent, a close family relationship. The limitation of these kind of studies is measuring child outcome, and and so you don't have a lot of data anyway, and you won't have a lot of fathers at home. But it may be the same. I mean, it should be the same. It should not make any difference. But yeah. The evidence is quite mixed on that, and every every new study says I've fixed all the problems of the earlier research. So I don't I'm not convinced by it, but there is evidence that you could use in that direction. Uh, that that would sh I I know she does cite one, but then there's a half dozen others that go the other way. So I don't know. Yeah. I think meta-analytic evidence suggests that the first year really matters, it makes a difference, um, but that after that it's um, moderated by the quality of health, that's a quality of care, it makes a big difference. But ironically, I think a lot of that quality of fare effect may actually happen with the lower, lower socioeconomics, so you get kids in who are being spoken to more and they get more exposure to words and reading and a variety of other things, but that, that's, I understand it's a quality of care is the big moderator on that. Um, but, there, but there's some evidence around first-year advantages. And there actually are actually some cognitive benefits to being an institutionalized, high-quality institutionalized care in terms of socialization and um, pre school preparedness and stuff like that. Um, I'm still working on the kind of not hiring from elite institutions <laughs> and <laughs> being here. But <laughs> I'm starting to worry about um, my students. Um, no, but uh, do you think your analysis uh, allows us to make those causal inferences and to say it is the elite institutions which cause this rather than it's the jobs which cause this, in which the elite um, people end up. And so if we don't yeah. hire from these elite institutions, then other women end up in these types of elite jobs, and it's really the elite jobs which cause all the trouble that we're so seeing. Yeah, we're, you're, you're, uh, we were talking about the background that led you to being in an elite school in the first place, and does being in the elite school transform you? And what I found is that if you take women from the less than bachelor's degree families, but they do attend an elite institution. They do have higher labor market activity than the elite, the, you know, the ones that you'd expect to be there based on their family background, but lower than their counterparts that are state, you know, would have been predicted to be tier four and stayed in tier four. So there's some transformation going on in college. Some of it could be who you marry now. Of course, it, but it, that may not be an important fact. Well, I'm also concerned that maybe you have control for that, and this is really more a question. I'm also concerned about the CEO versus the librarian. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, are elite women more likely to become CEOs rather than librarians? There is surprisingly little um, disparity in the kind of occupations college graduates get, at least as coded, because you have to code it up. You know, and you know. So when you say someone's a lawyer even if you know whether they're private sector or not, you don't know if they're a partner versus yeah. in-house. Right. So they're still yeah. private and that's all, you, that's all you're able to know. But there isn't that, there, that once, you're, once you're a college graduate, your occupation profile looks very similar regardless of whether you're an elite or okay. not elite. Yeah. 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 I mean, 
I mean, I think those two are like complementary or alternative or whatever hypotheses about like what might be operating, not necessarily that the person is transformed, but like two things that I've been exposed to reading some of this stuff. One, one is the, that there's an expectation that because you have an elite degree that you can, you can move in and out. And so whether that's a, I don't know whether that's a valid or I don't know if that's a myth or it's actually is right. That I that I because I because I went to Harvard, you know, I can get I can come back in after eight years. People will, will recognize that I'm really right. smart, you know. Whereas if you have a more ambiguous degree or something, that that, right. that you'd have less capacity to do that. So that that's one explanation for why they yeah. feel like they have the liberty to step right. in and out of the market. Right. But another thing I think we're related to Iris's point is you also have to think. And this, this is I. Some some people are doing work on like extreme work and partnerships, and then extreme work is another thing. Just li literally hours that people work. So in some of these elite jobs, where it's like you say, a lawyer is not a lawyer, but in you know in the high firm, these people are literally they're working all the time. So you have to almost add up like how many hours can uh, you know a couple work and still be you know oh, home. Right. Which is why I'd hope by including by controlling for the hours and the variability of hours by men that I would have explained more. But if you have but just occupation, didn't. I mean, I think yeah. that to your point, occupation right. no, itself right. is too right. vague. Right. Yeah. Um, the, at the high end, they're averaging 48 hours a week. With, so that's not, not, you know, we're not getting it. Yeah, you're not getting at the 900, I'm, all, I'm on the road all the time, right, right. right. professions, yeah. Right. So I just make one point, which is if you said, is it, um, is it easier if you have an elite degree to get back in? And I think it's not. Oh. It's really, okay. really hard. Okay. It's, so I think that's one thing. The other thing is, to Iris's point um, about, um, are we basically saying if we, if we hire people who are less likely to have family wealth, are we solving the problem? Because it sort of sounds that, that as long as you're beholden and you don't have a cushion, <laughs> then you'll, you'll, you'll make choices that compromise. I, I, I don't know. So that, so that sort of leads into the area that we're really interested in. We have a, we're starting a, a professional entity council for work-life blending for all parents, all people. Um, and we think that the system needs to be changed. And I know that, that I know you're supporting that with your data here, but the system needs to be changed. If you do it in an environment where both men and women take time off, you're okay. If you do it where it's still only used as here by women, it's just it's not going to help. So you need a higher level cultural shift to have changing the jobs be the answer. So um, now, well, going back quickly to this point, the stay-at-home mom enhancing child outcomes. Well, if they're the elite stay-at-home mom. They're the ones, you know, the enrichment activities and the SAT prep, and um, so it just leads to the crowding out and subsidization. You know, you're training. Are these, you know, you have the advantage of already family assets combined with more parental time, combined with the fact that legacies are three times as likely to be admitted to these selective schools combined with limited slots, combined with the graduate school tracking, that only enhances 
this divide that makes it harder for people who might, the women that might actually stay in the labor force to be selected for jobs that they might stick out and then open it up for everybody else. Sorry, so what are you saying if a woman with stay-at-home moms have better outcomes? Are you saying that like, they get better jobs or are you saying that they do actually work longer? Or Yeah. Oh, they use things like test scores. I mean, they it's uh, they use what they can use. Uh, you know, to, the, so I'm not sure. I don't oh, think sorry. I heard. So you. this is from other studies. So yeah, sorry other stuff, if I misunderstood. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Okay. So you're talking about outcomes that don't have ne don't, aren't necessarily about how long they've been working, but other types of outcomes along the way in terms of the schools right. they get into. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And finally, government subsidies. We are making policy decisions by the tax structure. So although student loans do favor those with lower income, elite schools have greater endowments. You contribute to the endowment, you get tax, charitable contribution tax credit. The, the schools, the elite schools, they're elite by definition because they get more grant funding, which is subsidized by our taxes. And then they get their charitable endowment, they get their endowments and then they invest it and then there's preferential tax treatment of the capital gain on these endowments. So we as a society have decided to subsidize the elites who then create more elites that, <laughs> that don't help us. So, the end. <laughs> Wow, we thought you were—we um, thought you were going to be provocative, and you really took us to an even more provocative space. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, and I, so we hope you all can join us ne next week. Uh, one of our fellows, um, Jonah Everett, uh, is from the University of New Brunswick, is going to give a talk on exploring uh, reactions to media coverage of uh, female politicians. So that'll be. Uh, Definitely be excited. Thank you so much. That was really Thank terrific. You. Thank you. Thank you.